0: Welcome to episode 123 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Rob. And I'm Jesse, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. In this world I oh, what if I'm... Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Rob McKenzie. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. It's good to have you on, brother. Thank you. Yeah, I,
1: I got here. Uh, I pushed Tony out of the chair. And, uh, and now I'm here. So it's great to be here. I,
0: I love this. I'm so happy to have you joining us today. And uh, I'm excited because you come with a wealth of experience about something that we want to talk about. And you're a ruling elder at Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Indiana Head Park, Illinois, which sounds like a delightful place to live, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's the near west suburbs of Chicago.
0: That's so it, that if, sounds cold.
1: Um, it has been, yeah. It, it's been cold today. Yesterday it was it was four degrees with a wind chill of negative twenty.
0: Yeah, that, that is beyond my comprehension.
1: <laughs> and of course we like had- Probably
0: most of this stuff we'll talk about today.
1: <laughs> no, I think you do all right. Um, oh yeah, of course we had the winter vortex last week and uh, that's when it was negative 19 or 23, depending on where you were in the area, with a yeah, wind chill even, of negative 50.
0: I can't even conceive of those temperatures. Yeah, it They're was just beyond me.
1: It was a bit cold.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. So in all that coldness, I know that you're working on your master of divinity with the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. Yes. You also co-host Theology Simply Profound, which is a brilliant podcast, a part of the Reform Forum. And as if that were not enough, like as if you were just not busy <laughs> enough, like you've you've recently authored... a a book entitled Identifying the Seed, an Examination and Evaluation of the Differences Between Dispensationalism and Covenant Theology, which is something that we want to talk about because we've been for a while wanting to really get into some good conversation about dispensationalism and covenant theology. And we thought we've got to get Rob McKenzie (laughs) on the podcast. There's just no other way to go about this.
1: Well, it's it's my pleasure to be here and uh, I'm looking forward to it.
0: So I really want to get people exposed to this wonderful book that you've written, Identifying the Seed, because to me, as I've read this, I mean, this book is really unique because it's about bringing about a greater understanding between dispensationalism and Reformed Christians who really have fundamentally different understandings of how God works and how he's going to work in the future. So I think this book is fits into a unique space.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's, that's why I wrote it, um, that there was nothing like this out there. Um, there's some the I, you know, I grew up a dispensationalist, and when I was coming out of that into reform theology, the books that I read that were available at the time was uh, Keith Matheson's book, um, Dispensationalism: uh, Rightly Dividing the People of God, uh, which is an excellent book uh, written in the 90s, and uh, Vern Poitras uh, in the early 90s written Understanding uh, Dispensationalists, and they were good, but they weren't they didn't do a, a, a distinctly side-by-side comparison for why we have these differences, why we're interpreting the Bible differently. And especially when I would hear mostly dispensationalists say uh, things about covenant theology that just weren't true. They didn't, and it wasn't any malicious statement. It was just, they didn't understand. And especially when you hear the terms like replacement theology and things like that, which we don't believe. Um, and you'd even hear, you'd ask, well, what does that mean? And they'd give you a definition and, and you say, well, that, that's not covenant theology at all. There, then there were times I'd listen to covenant theology or co- covenant people that would talk about dispensationalists. And they'd say, well, dispensationalists believe, uh, you know, multiple ways of salvation or uh, things like that. And I'd say, no, actually most of them don't. Uh, so I wanted to be able to take a book where I'm explaining to uh, both sides uh, the misunderstandings and give a good basic Uh, structure to what both systems are and are not saying.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, it strikes me there have been so many books written about dispensationalism and covenant theology, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no shortage of ink that's been spilled on those topics. And even on the internet. There's a ton of writing about that. So I was wondering if you could share just a little bit about how your background gives you a unique ability to understand and speak the language of both sides.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, well, I grew up as a dispensationalist. Um, I went through a uh, Bible college. My undergrad degree is in Bible and, and pastoral theology um, from a dispensational school. It was right after that that I uh, had become dissatisfied with the way dispensationalism was uh, interpreting scripture. And through uh, the reading of the Word and uh, a lot of prayer, um, I saw that covenant theology was actually the better way to understand Scripture. And so then I—that was about twenty-ish years ago. And since then, I've uh, become a ruling elder in the OPC, and I'm working on my MDiv through RTS. So I've I've understood uh, dispensationalism very intimately. And I understand covenant theology very intimately. And because the majority of my uh, friends and family that, that I grew up with, um, uh, and my wife's as well, are still dispensationalists. So, uh, throughout these years, even though we become, um, covenant reform presbyterian, uh, we've often had questions regarding, uh, covenant theology. You know, why do you believe this? Why do you believe that? Uh, it took me two years to, Um, convinced my mom that I was not in a cult and at the time I was at a Reformed Baptist church so it wasn't even Presbyterian and uh, it took me a while to to get her to understand that uh, covenant theology is is not cultish and being in the Reformed world now um, I've listened to people that are uh, asking questions about dispensationalism. So I've been answering these questions back and forth now for twenty years, and it was a few years ago that I decided to to stop answering the same questions over and over again and just to write a book and then I can just say, so go go see this chapter and uh, right you know
0: so this is why you're the perfect person that I think to ask this question. This is a question like I've always wanted to ask. So let's say okay. you're you're having one of those conversations. Or you're at the grocery store like looking over produce, or you're in an elevator, and, and somebody just comes up to you, and you have just a limited amount of time, and they ask about dispensationalism. How would you explain dispensationalism in kind of a little bit of like a nutshell?
1: Dispensationalism is a way to understand the unfolding of God's plan throughout history. As we see it in the Bible, there are um, usually seven distinct dispensation or way that God works with People, and sometimes this is a smaller group of people, such as Adam and Eve um, or Israel. Sometimes this is the entire world, such as uh, Noah and and the flood or the time of human government. Um, they understand that we are our salvation is through Christ, but that God has uh, given certain uh, promises to Israel through the Abrahamic covenant, and that He will. Uh, Fulfill those in the millennial kingdom, which is still the future. That uh, for eternity in the new heavens and new earth, um, all the people of God will be together. Although there still will be a distinction between Israel and the Church. Um, th- th- that's my produce, quick produce answer. Uh, <laughs> as you know, as I'm answering, I'm thinking of 15 different other questions that would probably
0: come up. Uh, well, and that's that's because it seems that I think everybody has a different. Understanding in some ways of dispensational mm-hmm. theology because it can be particularly nuanced, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's why um, I, if somebody said, "Well, can you explain dispensationalism to me," I, I think my real answer would be, "Well, can can you break that down to a smaller question?" Uh, right. You know, because if, are we talking about hermeneutics? Are we talking about eschatology? Are we talking about um, you know the soteriology? It's 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 just it's a longer discussion. And it's funny because, I mean, I understand the question of, of you know, in a nutshell, it's a very American question. We want yes. everything in a nutshell. Um, but we really, I, I think that might be part of the reason why uh, there is a, some bad communication between the two sides, because we only want things uh, in a soundbite. And, and it, we need to take the time to really discuss and listen to each other. Um, I think that'd be helpful.
0: Well, that being said, do you think, is there a key issue or a set of key issues that really promote that separation between covenant theology and dispensationalism? Um, yeah, yes.
1: I think there's, um, one of the key issues is, is more of a perceived understanding of each other. Dispensationalists are uh, view covenant theologians as not taking the Bible literally. I think that's one of the big ones. Right. And by, because we, covenant theologians, you don't take the Bible literally, I can't talk to you. Because we're, we're coming at, hermeneutically, we're coming at this at such different viewpoints that to actually have a conversation, well, how can it be helpful? Because you're going to interpret the Bible as a dispensationalist would say that covenant theologians, because they take the Bible, um, spiritually, that they can then interpret the Bible any way they want to. Right. Whereas a dispensationalist, because they take the Bible literally, they're actually um, only um, saying that the Bible is teaching this, and and it's not actually their interpretation. The, the Bible is just telling you, right? But you you covenant people are just using uh, that's your interpretation, right? So how can we have a conversation if if when in the middle of the conversation, as well that that's not what the Bible says; that's what you say.
0: You know, it's, that's that's challenging it's, to move beyond that to right. actually get to the to the issues, which I think is a lot of what you write about, which I appreciate. And I, I'm wondering because it sounds like you've had many of these conversations. You sound like super experienced in having mm-hmm. talked about this a lot. So I am curious, what do like the conservative reform those ascribing to covenant theology just get like absolutely wrong about dispensationalism, or what's like the worst caricature you've ever seen like created that really oh. hurts? Kind of that conversation.
1: Yeah, I think it has to do with salvation, that, um, that the understanding of dispensationalists that they believe in multiple ways of salvation, specifically that Israel, the people within Israel were saved by works, and, or that the people in every dispensation are saved according to that dispensation, so that their salvation is only based on whatever God's rules of the dispensation are at that time which you can find a few dispensationalists throughout history that have actually said that. But they're so minor within the position that to hold all of dispensationalism or all of dispensationalists to that hermeneutical interpretation is just unfair to them. Right. And with to be fair, part of the reason why that exists is because of Louis Schaefer, who mm-hmm. is the systematizer of dispensationalism. He is a key figure within dispensationalism. I mean, we, you can almost look at him as, as, you know, R. Calvin or Voss. I mean, he is, um, quintessential, their, um, uh, go to systematizer of, of classical dispensationalism. And he said, um, in his, in his, uh, systematic, he would at times make it sound exactly that Israel that the Israelites were saved by keeping the law, that, that the actual acts and work of keeping the law is what saved them. And he got that from his mentor, C.I. Schofield. And C.I. Schofield wrote a very famous study Bible, um, the Schofield Reference Bible, the Schofield Study Bible. And in that, in one of his notes, he says that the Israelites were saved by keeping the law, by, by doing the works of the law. Right. Now, that was written in, in 1911, 1919, somewhere right in there when that was revised long after Schofield had died that was revised in, in the 60s I believe that note was taken out and and a, a new note was replaced now to be fair to Schofield and Schaefer, there are other places where they say unequivocally we are only saved, all people are only saved through the, the work of Christ so it's, it's inconsistent on their part at best um, but because of those Different quotes because of just these small places. Um, Reformed people have gotten to a place of understanding that oh, dispensationalists believe that different people were saved different ways.
0: Right. Yeah, and I've heard that many times before as well. Mm -hmm. And and I think this is what's helpful is to even just be made aware that we're making unfair judgments Mm -hmm. is helpful in bridging the conversation so we can actually talk about the theology itself. So, what would you say on the opposite side? what is kind of like an unfair charge that's levied, you know, against kind of covenant theology that you were familiar with?
1: Well, I think there's two glaring ones. One is that uh, covenant people spiritualize the text that we don't take the Bible literally, uh, which is, which is untrue for one thing. Um, It is a complete mischaracterization. Uh, Often they'll, they'll quote origin to prove their point. Um, Well, I mean, Origin, there are lots of places that he spiritualized the text and came up with very, very unique uh, interpretations. But that is not the Reformed hermeneutic, and we go back to to Luther and even Augustine. I mean, that would talk about a literal understanding. Not that we agree with everything Augustine said, but but we still actually have as our foundation a literal view of Scripture. We we, as Luther said, um, you know, you interpret the Bible uh, literally first. And, but, but we also allow the genre to, um, dictate how it was written will interpret or will determine how it's interpreted. Um, so that's one of the main ones that we don't take the Bible literally. And then the other one is that we, um, hold to replacement theology, which, right. which we do not. And as Kim Ruttebarger has said, we believe in fulfillment theology. Um, the idea that, um, because, what what dispensationalists will say about covenant people is God didn't fulfill his promises that God made these promises to Abraham did not fulfill them in Israel. He said, this would be fulfilled in you and your seed, which is Israel. And God didn't do that. So then God took those promises and gave them to the church that this is what we believe, which we, we don't believe that. So, so the Israel has been replaced by the church and of course, when they give that description of that, we believe that. Then what they say is, "You don't believe that God keeps His promises." Right. So we destroy the very nature of God. We we turn God into a liar, uh, which it's we don't. Right, which we don't, by the way.
0: Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, like you said, that's getting again to like to the heart of the issues. And, and one of the things that I think you emphasize that's great in the book is that actually the conservative reformed and the dispensationalists. Hold much in common when it comes to respect of you know, inerrancy, authority, and infallibility yeah. of the Word of God. And one of the interesting distinctions that I think you illuminate is that the way these two parties understand how the Bible itself interprets itself. Mm. So, like the Reformed believe generally the New Testament interprets the Old, and the Dispensationalists generally holds to the Old Testament interpreting the New. So, mm-hmm. I'm curious, in your opinion, how do each of those hermeneutical perspectives end up viewing the authority of Jesus with respect to the Scriptures? <laughs> Well, um,
1: of course, you have to understand dispensationalists would never say it like you said it. Like we, we definitely—that's very true. <laughs> they, they would never say that the Old Testament interprets the New. Um, they don't have that category in their human, hermeneutical framework, but it's true nonetheless. And how they would view Jesus and His authority is they would hold that Jesus has complete authority. Um, there's when when Jesus says. Well, this was said of me in the old testament, specifically, Jonah. Um, you know, destroy this temple in three days, uh or like like the sun Band will be three days in the in the right. earth like Jonah was three days in the Well, Jesus is making an analogy to Jonah. Um, and and what we would say is, well, yes, and Jesus is saying that Jonah was a type, that that what happens with Jonah is actually pointing forward to Christ. And they wouldn't see it like that. Although they wouldn't and that that actual example would be something that they wouldn't have a problem with. Oh, okay, They wouldn't but they right. don't they don't have that hermeneutical uh, connection. So I, I think that even even your question, I'm not sure if their hermeneutical structure would be able to understand why you're asking that question.
0: Right. So in a way it's, it's just completely outside the scope. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't even register. And and even like I said, I, I suppose I'm I'm part of the problem in the sense of always thinking in those terms. So like we said that this idea that uh, generally speaking, there's this old interpreting the new, but if we're having a conversation with a brother or sister in this way, so how can, how do we ask a question like that without kind of inferring something that they wouldn't normally articulate themselves? Does that question make sense? Yeah.
1: I, I think the conversation would have to be had as kind of like what we're doing, where, where, instead of saying to them, "Well, this is how you do it, and this is how we do it," it's better to say, "Well, let's look at this scripture. Here's this scripture. You know, let's look where Jesus. Instead of Jesus um, talking about Hosea, making the analogy with Hosea uh, that out of Egypt I called my son, and it, at the time when Hosea is talking about that, he's talking or the reference is to Israel, right? And and a coming out of Egypt. But when it's talked about in the New Testament, that's applied to Jesus. So out of so then we go back to Hosea and we say, "Oh, this is actually while it is talking about Israel coming out of Egypt, it is actually also pointing forward to Christ." So we take that small example that they're going to say, "Oh yes, I I, I totally see that." And then we can go to other places like Galatians 3, which is one of the, the main battlegrounds that we have to deal with, um, or or Hebrews, basically the whole book of Hebrews. And looking <laughs> looking back at the analogies that are made, you know, that Jesus is, is a better high priest than right. Melchizedek, or I not mean, than, than Aaron, that he is of the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that the new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant, which is about to vanish away. And so we start we start having to show them, I think, our hermeneutic in practice. And that's going to be the best way to help them understand why we're, we believe that. If we just say, well, the New Testament interprets the old, they would, uh, if they understood exactly what we meant by that, they would be afraid that what we're saying is, that the New Testament replaces the old. Right. So if a promise was made in the Old Testament that had not been fulfilled, by a promise made by God, not fulfilled, now the New Testament come up, can come along, make an opposite promise, or take that promise and give it to somebody else. And now that's what we're saying. That We're saying the New Testament interprets the older, the New Testament replaces old promises, which is not what we're saying. So it, it really is getting down to the nitty-gritty of, of hermeneutical understanding. And what's going to work the best in this discussion is going to be actually going to the places of Scripture and talking about what is being said in that passage.
0: Right. So, so speaking to that effect, and you know, one of the things that strikes me that maybe is, again, a little bit out of scope is, you know, among covenant people, we think of the different covenants and generally our minds first gravitate toward the covenant of redemption, and generally we're referring, by that we're referring to the covenant within the Trinity, of course, which established the plan of salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, that is that the agreement within the Godhead that the Father would appoint the Son to give his life for mankind and that Jesus would in fact do that. Mm-hmm. And so in reading your book, I was thinking about how we even understand that idea, that concept, even if we take the language away, but expressing that relationship and that commitment, why is it that this idea of the covenant redemption would be a foreign concept to the dispensationalist? <sighs>
1: Well, for one thing, I mean, we have to remember that even within uh, reform theology, covenant theology, there are uh, people that would reject that term as, as a covenant. It's a minor position. The majority right. of people accept it. Um, and of course, we see that um, the covenant of redemption as, a, as part of or under the covenant of grace. So as holding, um, you know, we have to understand that, that there are differences even within our own st- – you know, the system. Uh, but going back to your question, it doesn't say in scripture, the words covenant of redemption. Right. And a dispensationalist will point that out. They'll say, well, there, you show me in scripture where it says covenant of redemption. And what our response is, well, no, we're, we're giving a theological term to truth taught in scripture. Yes. And my response to dispensationalists when they bring that up because they'll bring up the same thing about the covenant of works Well, it doesn't say in in Genesis the covenant of works that phrase is not used so my response is will you show me where it says the dispensation of conscience
0: or the dispensation <laughs>
1: right. of human government uh, we all give theological terms to theological truths to help us understand and systematize what's being taught in the word of God now specifically with the, the covenant of redemption if I was uh it depends on who I was talking to. If we were just talking about what the covenant of redemption teaches, then I'm going to go to John 6 and John 10. And, and uh, you know, I'm, ju- I'm not going to use the term. Right. Um, I mean, if he asks me about terms, uh, or if he if he began the conversation with what is the covenant of redemption, then I'll, absolutely I'll, I'll keep using the term. Um, I have no problem using it. I'm not trying to hide it. But it, it's better to demonstrate from Scripture uh, what the truth is, what's being taught. And to, uh, and to the dispensationalist's greatest credit is their love and respect for the word of God. Mm-hmm. They understand that it is inerrant, that it is, it is, it does not fail. It is authoritative. It is our ultimate authority. And it is only through scripture can we truly say this is true. And because of that, you know which which conservative reform believe as well so we have that commonality of our doctrine of scripture that it is inspired by God through the Holy Spirit and given to us that we might know him. So let's go to these passages and let's talk about the the scripture what is the scripture saying and that's where our authority has to be and that's where the conversation has to be had.
0: So have those titles or those labels become, in your opinion, so pejorative that they actually hamper conversation? I mean, is it has that hermeneutical distinctive really been the thing that's overshadowed that commonality?
1: I don't think the terms in and of themselves have. I think that um, I think terms are, are a necessary form of of understanding and learning. I think that we have to define our terms, um, even within the, your own faith. Uh, you know, we have to, somebody says, well, I believe in, in the, uh, you know, covenant of works. Um, well, we might take that and find different places that we're, we're applying that differently. And so what that actually means has to be fleshed out through a discussion. So I I don't think it's necessarily the terms themselves. I think that it it can be if all we're doing is throwing out the terms.
0: Right. Right. That makes sense. And, you know, my the way I grew up was not with the kind of intense exposure, I would say, to dispensationalism that would be helpful in trying to understand where people were coming. You know, mm-hmm. I'm struck by that phrase, behind a question, there's always a questioner. There's always a person. Mm. Of course, that's not just a silly person, but trying to search for the truth, to understand the scriptures in this sense, mm. and to be faithful to the Word of God, which I think is a helpful starting point. Uh, but, but that being said, one of the things that's interesting to me is, coming from a reform perspective where you know sovereignty is essentially given a premium in terms of understanding who mm. God is. One of the things I found interesting in reading your book was I was really wondering, and this is, I'm just going to warn you, this totally unfair question. That's <laughs> I was wondering coming from, you know, the, the, a really kind of, I would say reform perspective that doesn't have the good kind of sensitivity, I think to dispensational brothers and sisters. I've been wondering how does the dispensationalists maintain the sovereignty of God while embracing kind of an inherent structure where the people of the world can frustrate God's plans so that the, a new dispensation is necessary. So I know that's an unfair question, but that's the kind of things, you know, as you kind of talk, you, I'm reading and processing and thinking, well, how do we reconcile those things?
1: No, I don't, I don't think it's, it's an unfair question. I, I, I get it. Um, the dispensationalist has a high view of the sovereignty of God. Now... There's a difference between the sovereignty, there's a difference in explanation between the sovereignty of God and God ordaining all things. Now, Dispensationalist was going to, well, I opened up the book talking about um, the covenant of redemption. And the main reason why I did that is because that's going to be, give us our, our biblical understanding of salvation. This is the doctrine of salvation. And how we understand it. Dispensationalists who are Calvinists will actually agree with a lot of what is said. They might reject the term covenant of redemption, but they're going to agree with the Calvinistic understanding of our salvation. So within dispensationalism, those people who are Calvinists within dispensationalism are going to have a very high view of the sovereignty of God and have no problem with saying that he has ordained all things. But within that ordination, He has set aside in the structure of of this world and humanity and his people will be determined and divided with these dispensations and that from beginning to end, God is in control and man does not, it's not about man frustrating God's plans. It's about God demonstrating to man that Whatever situation God puts them in, they will always rebel. They will always fail. So it's not about God being frustrated. It's a, it's teaching man. It's demonstrating to man their relationship to God. So Adam and Eve fail in the perfect conditions. They, they fail. And then, you know, the, the people of God, when they're under their conscience, they fail. They don't listen to their conscience. Human government comes in to dictate the law of God. Well, the people fail. They're not frustrating God's plans. Um, right. For those people who are Arminians, or semi-Arminians, I think the, the people who are truly Arminians in the dispensational world are are a vast minority. What you have are semi-Arminians. So um, they believe that we can will ourselves in. God is waiting for us to exercise the faith that we have within us, to believe in him and repent of our sins. But once we're in, we can't lose our salvation, as in contrast to Arminians, who would say we could. Right. Uh, but dispensationalists there would say that that God is still in control of all things, but that mankind will always fail to adhere to the rules of the dispensation, the stewardship of the house, and so God knows it, it comes it comes down to the God knows they're going to fail. Right. He He knows they will because He's, he's all knowing. But they, the difference between the Calvinistic dispensationalists and the semi-Arminian dispensationalists is that Calvinists are going to say, God has always set this up. He, I mean, he has put man into a position where they should be obedient, but they will always fail. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need the cross. And that's why we eventually will need um, a, a new heaven and new earth. And we are all uh, regenerated into new bodies, never to sin no more. Uh, we are sealed by Christ. And, and throughout all of history, we have proved that we will not be obedient to God, but God and his sovereignty has ordained that as well. For a semi-Arminian, which is, throughout throughout history, the majority of dispensationals have been this semi-Arminian type. They would say that any time it was possible for any group of people to be obedient to the rules of the dispensation. So. In, under the the human government, it was possible for people to be obedient to the more the outward moral law of God, and to actually come to the end of the dispensation and be rewarded for being faithful. But right. nobody ever did. So it's possible, but but everybody still failed.
0: Right. Huh? <laughs> It's like being trying to cross some kind of river, but but nobody makes it across. Everybody yeah. always drowns for whatever reason. Yeah they, if you
1: they, get- yeah, they could make it. God's provided the water wings and the jet skis, right? But you know, for whatever reason, nobody takes advantage of those.
0: Right. You you may even get across and get on your feet and stand up out of the water, and you feel still are going to fall over. Yeah, you'll fall backwards. Yeah. Yeah, no matter how, how far, right. and that, that's interesting to hear you say that because I think my perspective has been that it's been dominated in that sense in understanding the dispensations by an Arminian perspective. Mm-hmm. Is that still true in kind of kind of I would say modern evangelicalism, or has that changed a little bit?
1: Well, again, I I want to put the the difference between a semi-Arminianism and an Arminianism. That the, the dispensationalism, I would say, it was now maybe maybe there's. Maybe I'm making too fine a distinction. But I think that the eternal security, which, to, to be fair, the Schofield Schaeffer type of dispensationalism was much more Arminian. But it was early on that this eternal security started to come in play. And in the 40s and the 50s, it became the standard view of dispensationalism that once you become a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. And so that's been the dominant view within dispensationalism. Today, we've seen a resurgence of uh, Calvinism within uh, dispensationalism, and I say resurgence only because I, I've been told by dispensationalists that Darby himself was a Calvinist. I have seen and been shown some evidence that that very well might have been true. I, I don't know. I, I need to. Darby's very. Uh, all over the place in a lot of things. I didn't right. use a lot of quotes from him because uh, it's just it, it, it just wasn't very helpful. Um, but uh, this is a longer answer to your question. So if you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna indulge me, I will go into this, and it really has to do with the Young Restless and Reformed movement, uh, okay. which which started actually in, in the first wave of this started in the in the middle to late nineties. And I'm part of that movement, the, this this group of, of, this generation of dispensationalists that understood Calvinism and Reformed theology came out of dispensationalism. Now, the difference there is that what we did is we became very confessional. So we started, we came out of dispensationalism and went to the OPC and the PCA and the URC. And, uh, you know, all these confessionally um, set and historically based denominations in the early 2000s the next group of dispensationalists to come along left dispensationalism but they didn't go as far and this was actually the young Restless and reform movement and they they embraced Calvinism and they um, kind of entered into this hybrid of dispensational covenant theology. Uh, but everything was focused on Calvinism. Everything's focused on, on salvation. And it was a very different group of people uh, than the first wave of, of people. Now I'm starting to see after 15 years now, I'm starting to see that that group has said, you know what? Uh, we need to become more confessional. And and that's good. That's a good they're 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 moving in a in a better direction. Uh, but also what has come through that has been um, almost a third way, which is uh, the kingdom through covenant, uh, new covenant theology, which right. is about as far away from dispensationalism as you can get, but still holding on to a little bit of dispensationalism and embracing a hybrid of, of covenant theology for Reformed Baptist kind of covenant theology. I actually don't really talk about this group within the book because that's not those were not the people I was writing the book to. Um, I've even got some flack for not writing and 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 using New Covenant theology within the book, showing that as as a contrasting and a third way or an extension of dispensationalism. But I've looked at that as that's not who I'm writing to. I'm not writing to them. And right. to incorporate that in the book was only going to confuse the people that I was I was writing to. But right. yeah, go ahead. Go
0: ahead. That's a fantastic answer. I I mean, I'm wondering for those, because this is kind of a a really broad subject, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if it might be helpful to kind of define a little bit how you would, uh, or you understand what a dispensation is, and how do we know that one has occurred?
1: Okay. A dispensation is an economia, which is is a stewardship. So it is a set period of time where God uh, gives certain rules to the people of the dispensation. They are to be obedient to these rules. It is a test for them. Um, In every dispensation, the people of the dispensation will fail to keep the rules. God will bring about judgment upon those people. And then that brings a close to that dispensation. And then after that, not necessarily directly after that, some time can go by, a new dispensation will begin. So it really has to do with keeping the rules of that specific
0: time period. And is there, because I think this is a, of some debate, is there a set number of dispensations or does it depend on with whom you're speaking? It depends on who you're
1: speaking, but the majority of dispensationals have held to seven. Uh, but I've heard three, five, nine, eleven. Uh, but the majority have held to a seven uh, viewpoint.
0: And in terms of whether or not that kind of the different perspectives, like you said, we've had kind of a Calvinistic uh, emphasis in dispensationalism, Arminian, semi-Arminian. Does dispensationalism generally lend toward one view or the other? Is there a proclivity to kind of enter into dispensationalism based on some kind of presupposition or is it really, it doesn't matter. It's, it's kind of broad. In experience.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good question to go back to your other question about dispensationalism and Calvinism and, and, um, when I talked about the younger system reform, one one of my main points was that dispensationalism lost a couple generations of its of its people. They became reformed or semi reformed, uh, but they moved away from dispensationalism. Dispensationalism of itself, I would say, leans more toward a Arminianism or semi Arminianism. Uh, Calvinism, uh, I, I really don't understand how Calvinism. And dispensationalism can coexist, and because and it really does come down to the idea that God has in Calvinism, God has ordained all things that right. that we do not have the ability to do good. So these dispensations are given rules. The people are given rules that they are to obey and they are to follow. And theoretically, in dispensationalism, the people have to be capable of actually fulfilling the rules of the dispensation for it to be a true dispensation. Right. So that's not a Calvinistic understanding. But having said that, there are many dispensationalists that do make it work. I think it's a bit inconsistent. But they're out there. Like John MacArthur. Right, yeah.
0: right, and he, hes probably the the poster child at least for that particular perspective, right? Yes,
1: yeah, absolutely. He's—you uh, have uh, Michael Vlock is is another one, but then you have with the more progressives, and they, they don't put them in the progressive camp, although they're very close. But then you have the progressives like uh, Craig Blomberg and uh, Robert Saucy, um, people like that. A lot of the people at Dallas Theological Seminary who right. are, are Calvinists uh, and yet. Uh, are, are progressives in their dispensationalism? Detroit Baptist Seminary is actually the home to what we would understand as classical Ryrie kind of dispensationalism, but they're Calvinists. So right. how that works out, I, I, I don't think it's they can really do it consistently, but they make it work.
0: Right. So, <laughs> so who am I? So- <laughs> I mean, that's something actually that I've seen propping up quite a bit. I'm wondering if you could speak to the distinctives between traditional dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism, since I think that's becoming more in vogue.
1: Yeah, it's the demise of of classical dispensationalism, or what I consider wiery dispensationalism, um, is there's still the masses that are in dispensational churches, I still think hold to a more wiery form. So it's in the academy that progressive dispensationalism has kind of become the standard. Now, what we're going to see is what we always see. with Whenever something enters the academy and becomes accepted within the academy, give it another generation and it will trickle down into the masses. So you still have, when you talk to the majority of people on the street, the average dispensationalist on the street is going to be more of a Ryrie person than they are uh, a progressive, but if you are talking to people that are pastors um, or that are are within seminary or seminary professors, they're going to be more progressive. And the main difference what progressive dispensationalism tried to do is it tried to incorporate um, some of the um, criticisms that reform theology had against dispensationalism that they've been battling back and forth. And uh, um, Lucifer Schaefer had some very interesting uh, arguments. Uh, with A.T. Alice from from uh, Westminster Theological Seminary at the beginning, um, going back and forth, uh, and and so there have been these criticisms, these criticisms that have come forth from the Reform Camp against dispensationalism that dispensationalists have always just kind of um, ignored, really, um, when it comes to. Uh, like, how can you have sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, right. uh, things like that? And, uh, with, you know, how can you have such a disunity between the people of God? And, of course, uh, you know, the, the idea that there's going to be two eternal destinies, one for the church and one for Israel, the Reformed are saying that that's just impossible when it comes to Scripture. And and classical dispensationalists kind of just um, said, well, that's that's what the Bible teaches. And so, therefore, that's what we're going to believe progressive dispensationalists, starting with Robert Sauce in the 1970s, but really taking kind of full, full theological form really in the late 80s um, and into the 90s, Just looked at those things and, and so there are no, for progressives, there is no literal temple in the millennial Kingdom. There are no literal sacrifices in the millennial Kingdom. Because Jesus is the temple. Because the sacrifices are, the sacrifices of praise that we give. Uh, and Jesus is the final sacrifice. So there can't be Uh, They can't be uh, sacrifices in the Moanal Kingdom. They also understand, uh, whereas in the Ryrie form, the classical form, uh, the new covenant was always future uh, as opposed to now. Uh, They still understood that that the new covenant has something to do with our salvation and that our salvation is through Christ. So in that respect, they understand that we see that new covenant um, activated through our salvation. But Progressives have said, no, it's much more than that. The Christ brought the new covenant. The old covenant is done away with. It. The new covenant has begun. Where they're going to still disagree is going to be, um, they're still going to see uh, the Abrahamic covenant blessings being fulfilled in the millennial Kingdom. Where well, or the, the classical, would see the Abrahamic covenant only fulfilled in the millennial Kingdom. That's where it's fulfilled. Progressives have said, no, we see, we're starting to see many of the fulfillments of the Abrahamic covenant now. And that's actually definitely moving closer to a reformed understanding where I think maybe uh, people in the reformed faith um, have, have gotten it a little wrong when it comes to viewing progressive dispensationalism is they've given them too much credit, actually, that because they've corrected some very serious matters that needed to be corrected, that they're wanting to look at them as uh, as people in the Reformed faith will look at, at John MacArthur and say, well, he's my good Reformed brother. Right? No, he's not. He's a Calvinist right. and he's a brother, but he's a dispensationalist. So the, I think we need to be – I, I want to be a little more guarded with my understanding of what Reformed is. Than to just reduce it to salvation,
0: right?
1: And so the the progressive dispensationalists—I try to bring this out in the um, book—they still hold to um, two peoples of God, Israel and the Church. They still hold to a rapture, a seven-year tribulation period, a thousand-year millennial kingdom, and an eternal separation of the people of God within the distinction that Israel has given the land for eternity. So whereas Ryrie and before Ryrie, we had this very sharp distinction, change with Ryrie from Schaefer and Schofield, but Schaefer and Schofield had the, the church in heaven for eternity. They were God's heavenly people and the Israel for eternity were on earth. They were God's earthly people and they'll mm-hmm. always be separated for eternity. God's heavenly people and God's earthly people and Ryrie came along and said, no, we're, there's still a distinction, but we we actually will be together for eternity. That was a good corrective. Progressives have come along and said, you know, even more so, we are one people of God, that when when the thousand-year millennial kingdom ends, we are one people of God. And, and so for eternity, we will become one people of God. That's the language that would come out of progressive dispensationalism. However when you start to read their academic works, and even now I've got um, a bunch of YouTube videos I put up um, of uh, the progressives sitting around talking about these things. Mm-hmm. The the necessity of Israel being given the physical land for an eternity has caused them to, I would say, take a step back. And now, that while they're still saying we'll all be together, church and Israel, all the people of God, we'll all be together for eternity. But Israel it's still distinct for eternity, and they are given the land, the, the promised land, for eternity. Well, as soon as you do that, you're still holding to a distinctly two peoples of right. God.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, th- there's so many distinctives there, and I appreciate what you said that I found interesting, even in that response, was about, about being guarded why do you think it is appropriate? Because I think some would say, well, we need more to do to embrace you know each other in this way. Why do you think it's appropriate to be guarded?
1: Because we're talking about how do we interpret Scripture and how do we understand Scripture. And um, I think that, well, like I said, I mean, John MacArthur is a, is a, is a godly man of God. And he's a brother in Christ. And we, right. that's wonderful. And I have no problem. With you know having a gospel coalition where you have people of different viewpoints uh, together on, on the same platform, I, that's wonderful. That's that's great. But when we uh, when when we're looking at when we when we see seeing the distinctives of our theological disagreements, then we, we've what we've said is this area this area of theology is important, but this area of theology is not. And so I want to look at all of theology as being important. And when I wrote the book, um, I wrote it. Now, of course, I'm coming at it from a Presbyterian, um, you know, Westminster Confession of Faith viewpoint. And so what I write, as far as the covenant theology goes, is a Presbyterian understanding of historically understood covenant theology. But I, I, I wrote it. With the idea, and I believe uh, I I succeeded, that a Reformed Baptist can read what I wrote in the Covenant Theology and agree with most of it. Absolutely. And and be able to to see, because I'm writing it to show the distinction between Covenant Theology and Dispensationalism, even in the places that I might disagree with a, a Baptist, a Reformed Baptist, he can still say, okay, the majority of this is great, and now I'm learning about... The, the the two different peoples, uh, the covenant and dispensationalism, and how they disagree, and that, because that's the main point of the book. I don't get into, um, I don't get into baptism. I don't do a chapter on the differences between Presbyterian or paedo baptism and believer's baptism because that this book just that's not what this book is for. Right. So I I took an area of theology and I said, you know what, that's something that that we as, as conservative Presbyterians and good Reformed Baptists, we can all, we can, we can agree on most of this together. I'm not going to put in something that we're going to disagree I I push so I was saying that for what this book is for, that, that was not important. Right. But I, but I'm not saying that if I was ever having a discussion with a Reformed Baptist and it got on the subject, that we could sit there and have a good discussion about these things. I'm not going to ignore it in other words. But for my book, it just didn't need to be there. But when you stand up and say, this person is a reformed person, that word carries with it much more than soteriology.
0: Right on. Hmm. Right on. That's well said. One of the final things I want to ask you is, you do have this wonderfully unique perspective. And I'm wondering What finally led you away from dispensationalism to fully embrace covenant theology? You you spoke a little bit about at the outset about coming to the scriptures and and being confessional, but because how we're raised is, of course, so important to who we are, and in some way it carries momentum with us. It's sometimes hard to change course, especially Mm -hmm. because there's a network effect of believing a particular thing and being taught the Bible and having a, a strong perspective. So what was that journey like? What was the thing that really led you in that direction?
1: Well, see, I, I took the Bible literally. This is what happened. Um, Amen. There, was, there were too many places. The more I read Scripture, um, the more I—dispensational I, system just was not matching up with what Scripture was saying. And, I mean, Galatians 3 was one of the big chapters. That, you know, Paul's saying um, that the promises were made to you and your seed. He doesn't say seeds, as of many— Right, But it's one seed that these promises made. So God made these promises to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, and they're going to be fulfilled not in the seeds, Israel, but in the one seed, Christ. And that was kind of like I couldn't make that fit dispensationalism because dispensationalism would say that God made the promises to Abraham and it's fulfilled in the seeds in Israel, through Christ, through Christ, but in Israel. But that's not what Paul was saying. So, you know, as as what usually happens, my most soteriology was broken down first. So I started to see John 6 and John 10 and Ephesians, that Calvinism or or that that we are elect and that we are the limited atonement and total depravity, which was the first knock, you know, the first uh, domino to fall. Um, So I became more of a Calvinist. But, But these things just started nagging me more and more. And the more I read Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is just, this just doesn't match with what dispensationalism was saying. Um, But see, for dispensationalists, you can get them to understand a lot of covenant theology and even agree with it. But then it comes down to this one point, and that is the land. That the land was said to be given to the people of Israel. And if that land is is yet to be given to them, and God is the keeper of his promises, then there has to be a future.
0: right?
1: Which is kind of a linchpin when it comes to dispensationalism. But Joshua 21 tells us. All the land was given. Not a word of the Lord failed. All came to promise. All the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were fulfilled. Not one word failed. And when I read that, and then I went back to the New Testament, it was like, okay, there's something not right here. Wait a minute. If all the land was given, then why are we looking for fulfillment of the land? Right. And then you read in Hebrews where it says that here, Joshua was given the land. It was all fulfilled. And then Joshua, he wasn't even satisfied with that. He didn't want that land. He looked for a better land, a heavenly land. He looked for the new heavens and new earth. That's where we find our fulfillment. So that was one of the main ones. But the the final domino that fell was Ezekiel's temple. That Ezekiel's temple in in Ezekiel 40 through 48, that dispensationalism, that's a literal temple in the millennial kingdom where sacrifices are being given, including sin offerings. Well, Christ, his Hebrews says, "Christ is the final sacrifice." right on. There, it is an impossibility for there to be a sacrificial system reinstituted at, at, at the time of the window kingdom, it's an impossibility. And when you when, – what the dispensational response is normally that uh, well, these are memorial offerings. Well you go back to Ezekiel and it doesn't say memorial, it says sin offerings, right. So you have to read into it. And then as I would read you know, the, the, the final, final with Ezekiel's temple was this river that came forth from the throne. First it was a stream, then it was, uh, you know, up to his knees, then up to his thighs, up to his neck. And then he couldn't, couldn't go anymore. He drowned because it just kept flowing, kept flowing. And all of a sudden Jesus in the New Testament is saying, believe in me and, and out of me will flow rivers of living water. And the Holy Spirit flows forth from Christ. Christ sends the Spirit. And and our salvation is what is flowing forth from Christ. So that was the final thing, that that it had to be the the, Ezekiel's temple was fulfilled in Christ.
0: That is absolutely glorious. I I can't say anything better than that. (laughs) So what I want to do, Rob, is I could talk to you all day long. And I think part of that reason is you're a wonderful brother. You also are like a great translator because you're intimately involved, like you said, in kind of both these perspectives. And that is what I think we are so sorely lacking in our ability to interact with one another. So what I want to do is I want to get your book in the hands of as many people as physically possible. So what are some ways that people can get the book?
1: Well, I am going to be doing a special deal with Reform Brotherhood listeners, and uh, you can use uh, the information. I've sent that over to you, and you can put that on your website so that people can have that. And the deal is um, for the, the book uh, alone, uh, be with the book plus shipping, will be $12. And I also did a study guide. We haven't really talked about that. I a separate study guide that you can uh, purchase uh, that will be on the link as well. And then I have a combination So you can buy the book and the study guide together. Um, But you can also go to Amazon. You can buy the book from Amazon. Uh, There's also a Kindle version of the book on Amazon. and uh, But that's only – so that won't be in the special. The Kindle book is only through Amazon.
0: Right. We'll put that all in the show notes and you can reach out to – if you're interested and you all should be interested in this – Uh, by emailing Rob at identifyingtheseed at gmail.com. That's one word, identifyingtheseed at gmail.com. And Rob, you've been super gracious because you've actually allowed us to give away one copy Mm -hmm. of this book to our listeners. And so if you're interested in getting this book, which again, I feel like I should repeat, you all should be, you can do that by entering the contest at reformedbrotherhood.com backslash contest. So one more time for everybody in the back reformbrotherhood.com backslash contest. And you'll have till February 23rd to go there and to enter. So Rob, I want to thank you again, brother, for joining us in this conversation. And really, I think this has been tremendously fruitful and profitable. Mm-hmm. You've explained so much and I appreciate you letting me like, ask these really direct questions. I probably would not have the confidence to ask <laughs> any other person who knows dispensational theology so directly. So thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed having talking to you. And uh, thanks for having me on.
0: So thanks again, Rob, for coming on the podcast. Until next time, honor everyone.
1: And love the brotherhood. Uh,
0: what if I'm fine?